Hi, everyone. Welcome to the kickoff of session number two, Essential Reasoning Skills for Data Science. Um, we have yet another all-star cast here today. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is um, modes of reasoning that are extremely applicable to data science. Those modes are uh, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and abductive reasoning. And the reason that I wanted to have a dedicated session on this is because I think data science is one of those uh, areas where in our day-to-day -day practice, whether we're doing exploratory data analysis, model fitting, predictive checking, things like that, um, we use each of those modes of reasoning on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet the terms like induction and deduction aren't actually com a common part of the data scientist vocabulary. Um, and furthermore, what I've noticed is that there's actually a bit of a division where if you talk to the highest level uh, machine learning experts or statisticians or data scientists, they actually do use terms like deduction and induction and say, oh, well, this is my inductive component of this, or this is my deductive component so that I know this bit will work um, or is true. And it's very much a part of the vocabulary of a certain population of our uh, of practitioners. And it's much less used in, uh, for example, uh, early career data scientists and statisticians. And I thought that this is a real shame because language is our way to reason about these things. So if we have these words in our language, we'll be better off and more capable of reasoning through them. Um, now, in a simple example of this, we've now seen the critical reasoning in uh, data science episode, in which I show how a deductive reasoning failure led me off on the wrong path. Now, I'll stop talking pretty shortly because I've been talking too much, but um, I'm not qualified to really to talk, to cover this in as rigorously as I'd like to, so I brought on the experts. Um, Alina, Hoob, and Joseph. And uh, just as a quick thing, I contacted Alina when I was first trying to put this session together, and she basically said, don't worry, I got this. She um, assembled her A-team of uh, Hoob and Joseph, and they put together the session. So I'd like to very much thank Alina for her effort on this behalf. So um, please clap at your monitors on behalf of Alina now. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so I guess let's begin with the conversation. We're just gonna have a, um, a conversation about this topic and then it will be followed by um, three very gentle short introductions to each of these modes of reasoning, which should be very useful. So um, where should we get started? Um, I think that why don't you each introduce yourselves and the uh, sort of scientific area or social scientific area in which you apply your research because I think we have a very good coverage there. Starting with uh, Hoob, upper corner. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Hoob. I'm an assistant professor at Tilburg University in ethics and political philosophy. Um, I have a background in philosophy of economics. Um, and I'm actually quite interested, so I did more empirical stuff when I was studying economics. Uh, and I'm interested in getting back to that. Uh, so researching people's intuitions about distributive justice. Um, so. That's it. All right, Alina. Great, so I'm a philosopher of science and I am currently a visiting researcher at the Finnish Institute for Health and Welfare. And um, when I did my PhD, uh, I was focusing on philosophical problems related to uh, psychometrics, which is basically the background theory of all of psychological measurement. And right now I'm um, generalizing from that, um, working on more closely on the, on the methods themselves and also writing about them in both Finnish and in English. Joseph, by process of elimination. <laughs> um, hi everyone, my name is Joseph. Um, I have a background in the philosophy of science and uh, prior to this, I was doing my PhD in the same department as Alina working on ethical issues in screening for cancer and looking at the uh, political and ethical issues arising in that public health practice. Um, and nowadays I'm a medical student at Brown and I'm just trying to learn how to become a clinician. Very cool. And so I guess one of the, I guess one of the key commonalities here is that you're all connected via the philosophy of science department at the other university, otherwise known as Cambridge. Well, me and Hugh, we are uh, ah. from uh, the um, uh, Rotterdam University, actually. We know each other yeah. from Rotterdam oh. University. And oh, then we okay. Our 
hearts uh, went in different directions, but still we kept in touch and uh, still continue to talk about philosophy of science every now and again. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it is, it is nice having um, these uh, dedicated fields to, uh, by this dedicated field, I mean, I'm talking about just the philosophy of science and having people uh, dedicate their time to focusing on these like more abstract issues to better understand, you know, how we are in fact practicing these. Um, so again, it seemed natural to me that uh, philosophers of science would be the ones uh, best meant to lead us through this, this practice. Now, um, I figured that, how should, how should we start? Um, I'm thinking that, uh, so I've, I've given out a thesis now, which is that data science has an interesting aspect in which we use um, inductive, deductive, and abductive reasoning pretty much on a usual basis. Um, but one thing is, of course, that there isn't a, while there is a very clear understanding about what these, uh, what these different modes of reasoning are, um, I guess, theoretically, in practice, they frequently overlap. Um, for example, in Hoob's presentation, he talks about how uh, Sherlock Holmes, the great reasoner, is using abductive reasoning, but he calls it deductive reasoning at the time, uh, just from his own, he used, says he's using deductions. Um, so is it true that um, in practice, these different modes of reasoning overlap more than we might like, that they aren't as clear cut as we might like to think? Okay, so, well, maybe I'll, I'll start. Um, well, first thing to note is that um, sometimes we or actually very often we call uh, a specific mode of reasoning by the wrong name. So uh, there are quite, well, maybe not clear cut, but still like more or less uh, clear guidelines for, for uh, differentiating between deduction, induction and abduction. Maybe the dividing line between abduction and induction can be sometimes a little bit like this, yeah. but uh, especially deduction is quite clearly uh, separate from those. So, um, and I think that um, it, it can be uh, maybe not dangerous, but it can be, uh, can lead to bad consequences if we, um, if we kind of call, for example, induction, we call it deduction, and then we kind of uh, imagine that some of the nice qualities of deduction also apply to, to induction. So uh, that's, that's the first thing that I think should be noted about the kind of like overlap. Uh, that, that's present uh, sometimes in this discussion. So there's an uh, like kind of the wrong kind of overlap between the ways in which we use the terminology. Yeah, that's you've really hit the nail on the head there for something that I've noticed where people frequently um, they do treat some inductive element of their sort of uh, data science or machine learning process and they treat it as some sort of like deductive guarantee. Um, very quickly, should we just define uh, deduction, meaning that the um, that if the premise is true, that your conclusion is guaranteed to follow from it? What is uh, how, how should we? I fear we should very quickly um, define what we mean for each of these terms. Right. Okay. So uh, deduction. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to think about it. Another way is to think about deduction in terms of rule based reasoning. So we have this. Uh, very uh, carefully laid out inference rules and and we can only arrive at valid and sound conclusions by by following those rules and i think that that's one um, uh, one way to kind of differentiate it from from the other modes of reasoning because the the rules of making the claims that you want to make are so clearly defined yeah so for example uh mathematics um seems to be one of the to me one of the clearest uh sort of heavily deductive um, disciplines where, and it's one of the reasons why I guess math is so difficult, but guaranteed because they are so rigorous in what you need to make a conclusion. Um, it, math is unforgiving in that regard. Um, but at the same time, when something has been deductively proved or mathematically proved um, that you are, you do have a guarantee that it will be continue to be a valid um, thing into the future. It, it doesn't stop being true because of some other, some new um, component. You know, the, 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 the mat doesn't shift underneath you in mathematics. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And now uh, how about induction? So um, Joseph, would you like to define induction and maybe give just a quick example? Um, sure. So 
I suppose in deduction, as Alina was saying, you know, if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. Whereas in inductive reasoning, when you have a set of premises, um, they provide evidence or support for the conclusion. But as a matter of fact, it can still be the case that even if all of the evidence points towards the conclusion, even if all the premises are true, the conclusion can still be false. Um, and so I think uh, a, a very simple example that many people might be aware of is, um, you know, the results of trials in, in science, you know. Um, studies provide lots of evidence for a particular conclusion. But when you're doing the study itself, you're usually or almost always dealing with subjects or participants that aren't the actual people who you're trying to intervene on later on when you implement a particular policy. And so um, when you're moving from uh, the study context to the actual context of implementation, a number of assumptions that the study relies on might no longer be true. And as a result, the conclusion of the study might not actually hold up in a different context. So that's just a simple example of how um, when we're dealing with inductive inferences, right, we have lots of evidence pointing in one particular direction for conclusion, but we need to be careful of what assumptions we are relying on when we move to a new context. Yeah, and I really like your example of the clinical trial, because especially in clinical trials where our conclusion is ultimately, it can frequently be based on a model. It's a good segue, because yes, it is true that we, uh, for the a clinical trial we're seeing, well, does our uh, trial sample represent the more general population? And which is why then we have terms like uh, efficacy and effectiveness, and we consider these to be different things in the clinical trial space. Um, because specifically because there's a difference between the way that the uh, clinical intervention is implemented in a trial versus how it's implemented in common practice. And I guess the reason that I think it's a good segue to the uh, discussion of abduction is because, for example, in a clinical trial, say you fit a, uh, a Cox proportional hazard model or something like that. And so effectively, you are then estimating the effect size. Um, and you're using that estimate of the effect size to decide if a drug is... Uh, useful in some way. That use of the model is then of course making, is, is a model fit, it is making inference to the most likely description of the data. Um, so it, I guess that is also an abductive. There's an abductive component that then you use inductively to say that this will be applied to other people. So um, Joseph, you always come up with the best examples. You also had that good one with the, uh, <laughs> the uh, personalized medicine one. Uh, but yeah, uh, that you, uh, you described in one of our previous conversations. But um, maybe, Hoob, uh, do you want to quickly go over abductive reasoning? Uh, yes. For? Yeah, so um, I would say abductive reasoning um, is trying to infer to the best explanation of a um, given set of facts. Um, and the example that I give um, in the tutorial is um, of Sherlock Holmes' methods. Um, so Sherlock Holmes often is confronted with a very disparate sets of facts um, that may lead um, to the discovery of who has committed a criminal act. Um, but it's very difficult to find a good explanation. Um, and what he's trying to do is to find the best explanation of the facts. Um, and once he's done that, he can usually point to um, who committed the crime. Um, and that's then the best explanation. This type of reasoning is used a lot in economics. So I'll provide an example of economics as well. Yeah. Very cool. And I guess uh, one thing that I wouldn't mind circling back on is the fact that you said that uh, inductive reasoning and abductive reasoning frequently are conflated. And I'm glad that that's been acknowledged because honestly, I use those more or less interchangeably, probably unforgivably. Um, like I pretty much use the term incorrectly about 50% of the time. Like my batting average is not too good on that, on that regard. But um, I am glad that I benefited from watching these tutorials because, you know, it helps me better gain an understanding of what I was doing. But um, what are, why, why would we think, why is there some, so much of this conclusion? Is it because we don't really understand the terms as well or because there is a legitimate philosophical gray area between these? For example, you know, the world's complex. And so we, when we're talking about an inductive or abductive component of it, it might be because we're focusing on one aspect of a complex system, um, which it's more inductive, for example. Is, is that a legitimate, uh, observation or are there um why why do why does inductive and abduction um why why are they confused so much 
Okay, well, I can start with my my guess of why why they might be confused so much. So, Guesses are perfect. <laughs> so so one thing that um, uh, comes to mind is that like you know in an when we when we have examples of inductive reasoning, it's often the case that we we talk about uh, some uh, group of evidence, and then we have one maybe two kind of hypotheses that we're considering in terms of that evidence and seeing like what would it take to go from that evidence to to that conclusion or how much of that evidence we need to go into uh, to uh, like confirming or corroborating uh, some of the theories. Whereas as as uh, in Hube's example you know, uh, in the Sherlock Holmes case, you might have various different theories and then you have various different uh, groups of evidence and then you're kind of like shuffling uh, between them and trying to um, maybe find a co coherent, find the most uh, coherent group of uh, both pieces of evidence and theory. So what, which things go together and, and uh, by that method kind of eliminate the, the bad or the worst worst alternatives and then arrive at the best one. So, you know, in, in both of these, you're kind of like trying to bring evidence and the conclusion into um, the, or bring them together, make them compatible. But abduction is uh, maybe just a little bit more messy as a process. So, yeah, I would I would like kind of and, and you know that that kind of makes it uh, makes sense. That's that's a reason why why you might get confused with them because they're kind of similar processes, but still a little bit different. Or am I am I completely off? Joseph? No, no. I honestly, my favorite thing was you said like abduction is a messy process. It's like yeah, it's it's real messy. It can abduction is super duper messy sometimes. Um, knowing knowing to actually how to like infer to the best solution or if even one. Um, that's why sometimes we like to just integrate over our different explanations and uh, hopefully that they, uh, they are more cohesive. Um, did anyone else want to add anything to that? I thought that was a, that is a really good, um, a really good explanation. Uh, no, I mean, I thought that was great. I, I think um, I will note, I think that one reason it is very slippery is that, um, you know, there's this problem of induction that, Lots, some people are aware of, you know, that comes from David Hume, you know, how do we, how do we rationally justify induction when all of our inferences um, have to rely on this assumption that things in the past are going to be similar in relevant ways to things in the future. Um, and so one, one thing that comes up in the philosophical literature, at least, is that abductive reasoning or inference of the best explanation is a potential solution to that problem where it's, it's just a form of reasoning where if we infer to the best explanation, we have um, you know, some sort of way to counter the worry that our inductive inferences aren't going to be very stable. Um, and so it sort of, it, it could be a strategy to put our reasoning in the world or about the world on a firm footing. Yeah, so I guess there's that quote that says, was it that induction is the jewel of science and the scandal of philosophy? Is that, is that the quote? Um, where I guess maybe, why don't we hit on, the, um, on the, the problem of induction once again, just in case people sort of missed it the first time, where we have this issue that we are basing, induction requires us to basically base our future expectations on a set of previously observed facts. And um, what we're essentially relying on is that there's some uniformity to this scientific process. That means that what we observe in the past is actually relevant to the future. Um, sort of like we saw the sun rise in the east yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Um, are we going to continue to believe that the sun will keep rising from the east, generally eastward, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I guess, is that, is, is that an inductive thing? Obviously now we have even more to base that induction on, but you know, even still, if we say we want to look at this from a celestial perspective, we still believe that, you know, the orbit will keep going in the same direction and things like that, that the earth isn't going to just immediately like pull a fast one on us and start going whirling in the opposite direction. Um, that is presumably an inductive um, belief. Yeah, I think you've uh, described uh, the problem of induction pretty well. So it's the, it's the problem that you can never have the 
like uh, full confirmation of a theory in light of the empirical evidence that you gather. So the pieces of evidence will never fully clinch the case for the conclusion, but rather you always have to jump through and jump over some kind of gap in order to make this general statement uh, about or general positive statement at least about the about the world. Yeah. And then in contrast, for example, deduction, we always know that it will fall through. Um, and so that's, um, we, we logically know that's going to fall through. Um, one other interesting thing is that since, you know, we do come from different applied fields or oh, uh, some varied applied fields, um, is the actual discipline in which people apply their scientific philosophy or their inductive or abductive philosophy, um, does it differ from field to field? For example, uh, where if someone is working in particle physics, it, are their inductive steps um, more certain than people, for example, working in to discover social scientific phenomena like uh, behavioral sciences? Um, is, are, are, there, are there differences in that regard where um, these different fields, uh, they might be have different levels of tenuousness um, where we can sort of, we believe the, that, you know, if, if the, the, some hadron particle collider um, result is less likely to be overturned by subsequent evidence than, for example, um, the effect of the Federal Reserve changing the interest rate and how that changes, you know, the, uh, you know, the GDP growth or something like that. As it, are, do these different fields have sort of different inductiveness uh, coefficients where you need to take bigger scientific leaps of faith? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I guess I can um, comment on that. Um, so, so I, I suppose another way to put the question is, look, there's this very deep, deep problem of induction, right? So, you know, philosophers have worried about this for centuries. Um, but then there's a more practical issue of when we have an inductive inference, you know, how certain should we be before we accept the conclusion? How confident should we be before we accept the conclusion? Because, you know, I think in practice, you know, taking the medical field, we can't just sit around all day and saying, oh, well, what if this inference doesn't hold true because of this really deep worry that Hume came up with? Um, you know, it is a very deep worry, but in practice, you know, we need to act, we need to move on. Um, and so, you know, one thing I know Alina knows a lot about is um, in deciding when to accept a conclusion that is an inductive inference, a lot of it will depend on uh, the, the moral consequences of being wrong. So, you know, if, if I'm running a study and acting on a conclusion would uh, incorrectly would lead to really devastating consequences. You know, the classic example is if I'm a regulatory agency and I'm deciding whether or not a particular um, chemical in lots of cleaning products will cause cancer. You know, I should be very, very, very certain that it doesn't cause cancer before I add that chemical to a number of different products. Because if I'm wrong, right, the consequences are going to be huge for public health. And so that's a case in which we're moving from evidence to um, a, po a policy, for example, and we need to take into account what's going to happen if we make this inference incorrectly. And that therefore also has an impact on how certain we should be before we act or, or accept a conclusion. Um, so that's just one way in which, you know, these, these sorts of standards for when we're acting on inductive inferences can change based off what we're actually using the inference for. Are there other, I like that, the idea of, the, I guess, like an asymmetry between, um, between the results depending on your conclusion. Are there other good examples of that? I guess from the medical field, one of the big differences that I think about is, for example, the difference between observational research and uh, clinical trial research, where obviously um, the results of clinical trials are considered to be less tenuous than the results of observational studies um, and things like that. And that seems reasonable. But um, back to the question, what I think is more interesting, that the one that Joseph brought up, um, what are some other examples from other fields about these sort of like asymmetries between uh, decisions? I guess we could flip that one and also say, you know, there's the asymmetry between um, if uh, where if a drug is known to not have any really poor effects and therefore you approve it, um, that like if you're if you know that the drug won't have negative effects but has some chance of an upswing, then you're better off. Um, then you might be better off approving it so that people at least have a shot at it. And the worst case is that they try something that's ineffective. And of course, I know that 
Um, socially, it sort of grinds our gears a bit. The idea that an ineffective drug might be put out on the market because obviously there's some profit incentive and things like that, and that bothers people. But at the same time, if it's sort of like there's no downside to a drug, um, but there might be a potential upside, then um, that might actually swing it the other way. Although it seems that we are generally... Our, our main regulatory concern is usually don't allow unsafe drugs and don't allow ineffective drugs, not uh, roll the dice on the upside. But what are some examples of these asymmetries uh, in other fields? Well, so in, um, in social scientific or psychological measurement, which I've been um, looking at quite a bit in my research, there are multiple examples of, of these kinds of asymmetries. So, um, or this kind of uh, this process or the problem of weighing uh, whether or not we have enough evidence or whether or not we can be confident enough in our evidence to base our decisions on them. So uh, psychological measures are used to make decisions about uh, which schools, uh, which schools a, a person gets into or uh, which drugs a person is being prescribed. So when, when we're measuring, for example, mental illness and when it comes to uh, determining who gets to go to a specific school, uh, you can have like tests of uh, intelligence, or you can have tests of like uh, characteristics of, of the person's personality or stuff like that. And, uh, and yeah, so these measures are or have been used uh, throughout history and are still used to make uh, decisions about uh, who gets to do what and who, who needs to take a certain drug and which drugs are allowed on the mar market and uh, who gets a job. So uh, personality testing has been uh, very uh, prominent in in kind of like or at least used to be it's, it's probably a bit less now but but there used to be a time when when like companies really uh, used very uh very very much of these uh, personality tests to determine whether a, a person is uh, fit for the job and of course there are problems uh with uh, with the measurement of of the human mind uh people are uh kind of like you know, we, our, our behavior is hard to predict and it's hard to read the measures precisely. So uh, if, we, if we read the measures wrong, then we might make the wrong decision and that might have really uh, bad or really good consequences uh, for, for the people whose lives we are um, impacting with those decisions. So, so there's plenty of examples there. Yeah, when you said uh, that if you read them wrong, it might have good impact on the people involved. It reminded me of uh, that there's some 90s movie about the Flintstones remake where Fred Flintstone gets his uh, his sort of aptitude test incorrectly read and then gets shot up to become a manager simply because they read <laughs> his aptitude test wrong. Um, so that's the example that uh, popped up. But yeah, it is, it is interesting. And again, this brings up the sort of um, the induction, abduction aspect of this where um, – I guess when you're talking about, I guess, aptitude tests or personality tests that, um, you know, there are these components where there are very strong correlations between um, certain types of personalities and uh, what field they might want to go into or the um, way in which they like to work. But at the same time, there are people who strongly deviate from these things and they sort of get missed by these same metrics. So um, similarly, like you're trying to find these correlations between these aspects, but to use those as if they are certainties, you know, to, again, as your example, to take an induction and to start treating it like it's a deductive truth leads to, you know, some pretty, I guess I won't catastrophic might be too strong of the word, but it leads to some pretty big missteps in logic. Um, so you, you could just imagine that if you are using something is uh, bland is like an uh, bland isn't the right word, but you know, as uh, ham-fisted as an aptitude test that only measures, for example, on a mathematical aptitude, but then you're missing out on, for example, like interpersonal aptitudes and in, uh, I guess would be like social IQ and um, was it? emotional IQ is the one. Obviously that's the one I guess I missed because I couldn't remember the word, um, but yeah, or uh, verbal intelligence and things like that, where um, if you have one of these assessments and it does heavily favor um, one of these skills and then call, calls that the generalized intelligence skill, then you're missing out on all these other components of um, human capability. Also, I've, I've read some more like um, there's the stick to metric. So like how tenacious people are. And that's pretty much as, as big um, of a thing for measuring someone's success, like whether or not they're just tenacious and won't stop as opposed to actual like having a high level of like intellectual aptitude. But I think I've gone on too long. Um, 
but it is it, it is certainly an interesting thing. Uh, Hoob, did you have anything to add? Yeah, to so I, I wanted to add an example from economics um, where you can also see um, that for some time, something that people thought, so what, one metric that was considered very important in um, uh, analyzing whether the debt of a government was sustainable was that it shouldn't be above 90% of GDP. Um, so um, the worry was that then you would get into a debt, uh, debt spiral uh, because you couldn't fund your public debts anymore. Uh, countries would start to distrust you and not lend you any money. Um, but after the 2008 financial crisis, that actually um, became much more contested. So additional research suggests that the whole story is much more complicated. It also depends on how your debt is funded. So if it's largely domestically funded, um, you can have a much higher debt to GDP ratio um, with very little problem. And also like Japan, for example. So like yeah. Japan, who has like, a, I think. Japan has like a, above 200%, so which also shows this. Um, how important it is and that we're trying to, so we think we have a good explanation, but there are all kinds of factors that interplay. And once we look into that in more detail, um, it turns out that the story is again more complicated. And I think that's what this shows. Yeah. Very cool. And um, yeah, so I think I, I guess I, I think that also does show how. Um, so, for example, if we again look at something like economics, where we think that we have this very strong correlation, or this very we have this very understrong, we have a very strong understanding of the mechanisms involved. Um, but when things change, when you have something like a catastrophic uh, event like uh, the 2008 collapse, and we think that, oh, well, given the metrics that we have, all these metrics are changing, and yet the overall outcome is not changing, that then obviously that there might be, there's other components of this that aren't as well understood. Um, whereas, for example, if you take, uh, I don't know, uh, lab science, for example, where it's very, uh, where presumably you're having these very controlled tests and you're only changing one parameter at a time that um, we should have a better understanding about what the effect of a single parameter changes compared to this to social sciences where you're never changing one parameter and that you're having to, well, you're very rarely changing just one parameter. There's always multiple things changing and you have to try to account for those correlations. The next thing that we're going to talk about is um, an interesting aspect that Alina has brought on, which is how induction, <laughs> for example, can seep into deduction. And um, so basically nothing is safe. Um, and I think actually we got a pretty good example of this uh, earlier in the series with the issue of the deductive failure that I made um, in uh, patient monitoring, where essentially I had this thing that seemed deductively true, but because one of my premises was based on previous observations and those inductions were not true, that in fact my deductive mode of reasoning failed. So it's a bit of a uh, deeper issue, but Alina is going to lead us through it now. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the general form of the, of the problem is that um, in a deductive argument, as we have mentioned several times, like if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. But then, of course, there is the question of whether or not those premises are in fact true. And if those premises contain inductive claims, then, uh, then the a problem of induction or the difficulty of kind of being very, very certain or, or at least more or less certain about the truth of, of your conclusions. It kind of becomes uh, the problem of, uh, that, we, that we're dealing with in, in the realm of induction becomes a problem that we have to deal with also in the realm of deduction. And uh, and there there are other examples of this. So so you know if we only think of mathematics as an example of deductive reasoning, then we might let, might be led into thinking that every time we have a deductive argument, then we can be like just by virtue of it being a deductive argument or it being called deductive argument that it's it's like uh, a very solid grounding for for going forward. So uh, another example is that. A lot of times our deductive arguments are given in a formal formal manner. So for example, if we give a mathematical argument, then we are using these X's and Y's and, and, and uh, these uninterpreted symbols. But as soon as we give the, give the symbols interpretations, we have to give uh, kind of empirical interpretations for the assumptions that we're making, then uh, it might, might turn out that, that the deductive inferences that we've carried out on the on, on the formal uh, 
rep representation of a situation, they might not uh, fit the situation that we're actually trying to explain with the formal model. So, so that again brings in issues that are not kind of uh, the, the focus uh, when we're talking about deduction uh, at the kind of like basic level. So yeah, yeah. just the point is just that there's, there's more to deduction than, than this basic level of, of certainty that it seems to carry. Um, just to make it uh, is the idea, I like the idea between behind um, that when we have the we can have these formal x's and y's and provide a a true deductive um, conclusion in the formal sense. But the moment we try to turn those x's and y's into real world properties, um, things like you know mass, height, weight, conductance, length, um, things like that, where the properties of those real world entities then means that our uh, deduction is invalid because those have further constraints on them, for example. Is that the idea behind this, that actually the deduction becomes invalid uh, in the real world setting? Yeah, so uh, the example that I'm going to give is from uh, psychological measurement. And, and so, um, for example, when we're looking at the reliability of psychological measures, for example, measures of uh, intelligence or measures of depression or something like that, there is this background theory uh, that has a formal, um, there is a formal theory. And in that theory, uh, we make assumptions about what, er what kind of error would be allowed uh, for that theory to be applied in a certain kind of context. And uh, there are other assumptions about uh, what, how different testing situations relate to each other, namely that people don't change uh, in between those testing situations. And so those, those assumptions are needed to derive certain kinds of uh, measures or indices of reliability. So the, the mathematics behind the theory uh, or the indices works nicely. But then, of course, as soon as we come into the realm of, of actually measuring psychological attributes or psycho psychological uh, phenomena, then those assumptions are going to be violated. And so that creates some issues for interpreting the indices that have been uh, derived on the basis of certain kinds of assumptions. And, and so that is one of the examples of where we have a nice deductive argument, but then as soon as we apply it to a real world phenomenon, then um, it, doesn't, it doesn't invalidate the argument. The argument continues to be valid, but it's just a matter of asking us uh, ourselves whether or not uh, the assumptions are fulfilled in the uh, in the empirical situation sufficiently for us to kind of warrant bringing the uh, indices that we've derived in theory to to practice so no it's not uh, it's it doesn't uh, invalidate the argument but it's more a question of like applicability and what what can we interpret how can we interpret the, the results Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, um, as you're talking about that, it was making me think about some of the other uh, work in uh, medical science that I've seen where we actually do create like applicability indices and things like that to try to better understand um, where our conclusions, uh, for example, uh, two quick examples, yeah, um, where um, in a Bayesian context where we have priors, and the question is, well, are those priors actually legitimate priors? Like, do they actually describe our prior information given the new subjects to which they're being applied. <clears throat> um, so uh, there are actually, you know, there are indices, uh, I think uh, in a previous conversation with uh, uh, someone who works with the FDA, they talked about using these for clinical trials. Another one is uh, in machine learning very frequently where we actually have these indices where we do know that the mathematics of a certain algorithm works perfectly under certain circumstances. But when it starts breaking down, we essentially we can't mathematize um, all the different ways in which it can break down, but we can try to create sort of indices around applicability uh, for those. And so it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, there's a limit to where we can deductively get what we want. Um, and then after that, we just need to identify what are the scenarios where this still applies. Um, so it is interesting. And while I understand that these, what I'm discussing isn't, you know, obviously directly related uh, isn't directly applicable to what you talked about. It is interesting how in these different uh, fields, people are trying to essentially grapple with sim these similar ideas in their own uh, fashion. So, uh, 
So similar, similar, uh, they're trying to cook a similar thing. But they're just using slightly different cookbooks to, uh, to come up with their recipe. Cool. Hoob and Joseph, did you want to add anything to that or are you set? Do we want to open another can of worms? I mean, I'm happy to add. To oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. How about for the, yeah. For the next, uh, um, so, uh, maybe for the next can of worms to open up, we should do, uh, here's a question. Um, science it's based on induction. We've pretty much said before that induction is not guaranteed. And yet science seems to, our scientific methods seem to work pretty darn well in describing the world. Why is that? And by the way, just a very quick interjection thing. One of the most fun things I found about like talking to philosophers, cause now I've talked to quite a few of them. Um, they all pause and think before they speak. And I think that that's very interesting um, and something that I personally can learn from, but it's, it's been, it's been really fun um, uh, t talking to, I probably talked to uh, probably um, probably about 20 philosophers now over the course of creating the series so far. And all of them, when I ask them a question, it's always, there's always like a pause and they think first, um, which I, I really enjoy. Scientific reasoning or the scientific method why does it work so well to describe the world that we see around us? It's a trick question because what is the scientific method? Ah, <laughs> yes. How do we characterize the scientific method? Let's do that first. The world around us. <laughs> yeah, what is the world around us? Um, what is, why don't we actually address that first? Because actually that's something that I've been meaning to uh, talk about. Um, what it, what, so the, when we talk, people typically when they talk about the scientific method, they talk about, it's a, Loosely in their mind, what they mean is something that's sort of like a little bit Baconian, a little bit, um, a little bit like a math, a little bit of like uh, experimental design and things like that. Um, but really, it's sort of a collection of different methodologies that we use, um, and that, um, and so that we sort of we're, we're cobbling together different sort of good ideas about how to assess scientific statements and things like that. But what, what would we say are, what would make me a method scientific? Like you said, I think a scientific method uh, is a collection of the various things that have been tried and that, that have been tested in various uh, circumstances in various fields. And um, so because of that, and because there are so many different fields, so many <clears throat> different things that we can study, uh, so many different methods, some of them are inductive, some of them are mathematical, some of them are uh, armchair-based uh, thought or theorizing exercises. And, and yeah, so because there are so many, we can't really like give a general characterization that goes beyond saying it's the collection of the things that uh, we have tried and tested in, uh, in trying to figure out what the world is, is like. Um, but beyond that, that you can you can kind of specify it by talking about the the desire to to be objective, uh, whatever that means. You know, there's a different a lot of different ways in which we can understand that. And then there are these um, kind of concrete, practical uh, methods that scientists have devised to make sure that the results that whatever method we're using that they that the conclusions are reliable or uh, at least somewhat reliable that they're valid and stuff like that and some and one of those practices is of course peer review and and you know so I think that um, to kind of summarize the idea is to say that scientific method is a collection of various things that uh, the the kind of reliability and trustworthiness of which are con continually being being tested uh, by by various different practices that scientists have come up with to to kind of ensure that that we're getting at knowledge and understanding and all those uh, epistemic virtues that that we want science to have and uh just because we're just cracking open cans of worms right and left um what about pseudoscience for example or is pseudoscience best defined as sort of just some counter to that, so it's the absence of some of these scientific virtues. Um, how would you describe that? So the question of, um, you know, the difference between science versus what you're calling pseudoscience. I mean, I mean, I think this links up fairly well with what Alina's video is about in deductive reasoning. So 
Um, one of the biggest 20th century philosophers was Karl Popper and his main claim was that um, what pseudoscience is, is that, or what science is rather, is that it's putting forth theories that can be falsified. So a very basic structure is, you know, if P then Q, not Q, right? From Alina's video, we know that um, the form of that argument therefore leads us to conclude that not P, right? So if you have a theory, it implies that this conclusion should be true. That conclusion is not true. We should therefore reject that theory or reject that hypothesis, right? And so science is a series, on his view, science is a series of putting forth these um, theories or hypotheses and then testing them and then figuring out which ones we can falsify. And so one component of what's called pseudoscience is that um, even in the face of contradictory evidence, um, that the initial hypothesis isn't rejected. So um, astrology is a good example, you know, this comet is going to fly over at this date and that's going to mean that we're going to have a really good October. And then October isn't very good as a month. And rather than saying, okay, our theory about the relationship between comets and comets and how good our month is, is false. We come up with a different explanation to say, oh, well, you know, it just wasn't raining that month. So we can still keep our initial theory while, um, while ignoring the contradictory evidence. So that, that's, that's sort of one way to draw the distinction between what's science and what's not science. And I suppose it links up with Hoob's video as well on um, inference of the best explanation. So, you know, in thinking through what is the best explanation for a particular set of observations, you know, it's important to keep in mind, you know, we, we, should, we should be willing to reject our initial theories when we have evidence to the contrary. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, Joseph is um, explaining uh, completely, uh, like in line with with what I've also been uh, taught about uh, one of the ways in which you can differentiate uh, pseudoscience from science. But then, uh, as always with philosophical questions, there are are further difficulties with with this kind of uh, criterion of demarcating pseudoscience from from science um, and one of the difficulties is that there are a lot of cases where uh, even if our evidence seemingly falsifies our theory, uh, we kind of hold on to the theory because there are other aspects of the, so there are, for example, uh, implicit background assumptions that we feel like uh, we would, that would be more reasonable to reject rather than the theory uh, itself. So, um, yeah, so falsification in that sense, you know, we need to be, we need to kind of further uh, characterize falsification to then get rid of these examples of what we do regard as genuine science, where in fact we have, where at least it looks like we haven't kind of like rejected the theory just because uh, there was some um, falsifying evidence. So yeah, that's just to point out that these, these kinds of debates are almost never uh, complete or there, there's always more to be said about them. Yeah, and I guess one example of that uh, where you talk about, and this is an extreme example where you don't always reject, for example, good theory in the light of new evidence. One, because evidence can be corrupted in some way that you haven't accounted for. But I guess a really just simple example is, imagine I, uh, you know, on a piece of paper, uh, drew a bunch of right triangles and we measured those right triangles and then we compared A squared plus B squared. Does it actually equal C squared? Um, and I, you know, take out my, you know, one inch ruler to make that, um, to make those measurements. Well, I can tell you right now, no, the, my A square measurement plus my B square measurement is not going to equal my C square measurement. That doesn't mean that we throw out the Pythagorean theorem. It's because we know that there are other, uh, confounding factors in our measurement process. Um, and I guess you could call it our experimental process that will, um, that will cause that our evidence will be our evidence would contradict what we'd know from the theory. But the fact is we know that the theory is true and we know that because of the deduction. Um, and I think also, uh, for example, in economics, there's a lot of, there are many cases where we say, for example, that we know that logically, um, that logically certain phenomena only move in certain, uh, certain directions. Um, so for example, you know, obviously you can't be increasing the price of something um, while still also while allowing more people to be able to afford it. And so that there's a natural monotonic relationship between certain variables. 
and that um, no matter what the actual evidence says, we aren't going to make conclusions. We might say, oh, well, our understanding about exactly how much these monotonically related things uh, correlate with each other might change. We don't actually change our understanding that these are monotonically related in some way. Um, so examples like that, and I'm sure that there are uh, plenty of others in uh, well, I like guess biological sciences, there's quite a few where we know that, for example, uh, cell interactions or intracell interactions and a lot of the intracell functionality, it operates in a certain way. And that uh, no matter what your lab test says, if it contradicts what we know about the actual functioning and mechanisms on the cellular level, um, we would probably generally choose not to believe that. Now, of course, with the review process, people might ignore that or they might not know about certain mechanisms enough that they understand that there are these other confounding theories and components that would actually uh, nullify these uh, experimental results, but still they are out there as a form of reasoning. Um, so yeah, I think you've brought up some really good points there. All right. Well, we've covered quite a bit. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think that we have, I've learned quite a bit and I think that these are exactly the type of conversations that I think data scientists should be um, interfacing with quite a bit more. Now, of course, the real main event is coming with each of your fantastic, gentle introductions to these topics. So um, to get more of a formalized understanding about how we do deductive reasoning and some of the uh, uh, components around that, how we have inductive reasoning and some of the caveats that are involved in inductive reasoning, and then abductive reasoning and seeing how even Sherlock Holmes um, can get some of his, uh, some of his reasoning wrong. Um, or at least not describe it correctly. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you each for what you've contributed to this series. I really appreciate it. Again, a final round of applause for Elena for pulling it all together. But I think we have three great presentations ahead that will be really good uh, for people to watch. So uh, thank, you, thank you each for uh, showing up today and for your presentations. No, thank you. <laughs>